when you have people trading with each other around life's essentials, like meat and like milk and vegetables, if people are making a good livelihood trading with each other, they're building a stronger fabric of life and they're building stronger economic multipliers as well. I'm Tanya Kersen, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. What's the purpose of a food system? Whatever comes to mind when you hear that question, I'm guessing your answer isn't that a food system should extract as much wealth as possible from rural and urban communities. But according to my guest today, that's exactly what our food system is designed to do, and he's got the data to prove it. Ken Meter is one of the most experienced food system analysts in the United States, with 50 years of experience in inner city and rural capacity building. He's promoted local food economies in 143 regions, in 41 states, two provinces, and four tribal nations. And he's the president of Crossroads Resource Center, a nonprofit that works with communities to foster democracy and self-determination. His new book, Building Community Food Webs, brings together decades of experience and analysis to make a strong argument for reversing the extractive economy and weaving food webs that restore local wealth, health, capacity, and connection. Hi, Ken. Welcome to Real Food Reads. It's great to be here, Tanya. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. The title of your book is Building Community Food Webs. And before reading your book, I'll be honest, food webs is a language that I was using all that much. Can you give us your definition of a community food web and also why you chose this language over, say, community food system, which you, you do use in the book, but you chose to title your book Community Food Webs? That's a really great question, I think. You know, back in the mid-2000s, I started talking about food systems as very complex networks of activity. And I think our business discussion kind of likes to have us think about them as supply chains or chains where someone is on one end buying things and someone is on the other end growing things. And the people who are buying kind of yank the chain of the people who are growing the food. And I've been saying for a long time, this is a very complex network. It's changing rapidly on an hourly, daily basis. And you have to understand there's a very intricate network of relationships. And um, the more I used that language, the more the idea of a web came to mind, if only to kind of make an image out of something that seemed like an abstract idea to many people. It wasn't too long after that I learned of a food organization in uh, Oregon called the Ten Rivers Food Web. And uh, since I wrote the book, I've actually discovered that the people in uh, Britain have been using food webs as sort of their term of art, at least since 1998, if not earlier. I found a, a book that was published in 1998 using that term. So it's really been out there for a long time. But I used webs because it's more of a, a sort of image of, from nature. And it's, it kind of suggests that we're weaving the net relationships ourselves and we're making the connections. I think the word network work can seem impersonal. It can seem like it has to be a hub and a spoke where there's a center that kind of is making the network strong instead of really talking about how people can reinforce each other from the on the edges of that network. And um, I also liked it because of the sort of um, resonance with, say, the network mycelia weave underground, where they're transporting nutrients and information to root systems of plants in the garden or in the fields. There's a whole network at work that we commonly don't give much credit to. 
And I wanted to sort of elevate that into a, a, a term that we embrace. And, and I've been actually very excited because several people after reading the book have started talking about their work as part of their community food web. I think it's really had some resonance with people. I, I like it mostly because of the way that we talk about we weave the web and we make it ourselves. But I also like it for just kind of reminding us that we're part of a natural web of relationships. And it kind of reminds me when I use that term that I'm closer to nature. I'm part of nature. I survive because of a network of relationships in our ecology that allow me to thrive. I find that it's resonating very, very well with people when they hear it. But it's a new term for people. And I'm, I'm hoping the book will kind of create the possibility that that will be used more often. I love that. I really appreciate how you just described that and really painted this vivid picture. I think we can imagine the difference between a chain and a web. But I think it also speaks to, you know, the phrase you just used that I really love is we weave the web. And there's something about the word system, like food system, where sometimes, you know, I have found that people feel like a system is inherently oppressive, or we start talking about like, you know, working inside the system or working outside the system, as opposed to this sense of, you know, the system is us, I think is a difficult thing to kind of inculcate. I like how you're putting that. And and I, you know, I, I use the word system all the time. I, you know, I've been very, very much influenced by people who've done systemic work in terms of how do you think about complex systems and how do you analyze them and, and how to work with that. I don't think the word system is a bad word, but I think you're right. It tends to, you know, some of us tend to kind of feel more powerless when we hear that word. And it's sort of, it may sound like something that is imposed upon us rather than something that we make ourselves. You talk about how the current food system we have is extractive. So I want to talk a little bit about that uh, because this has been sort of a cornerstone of your work for a long time. How does the food system extract wealth from communities? And I do want to talk about, about urban communities as well, but maybe starting with rural communities or farming communities. Sure. I think farming communities is a good place to start. There was a real big argument in the mid-70s. Some farmers were realizing that we were burning our topsoil up, and we, were, we saw the, the topsoil going down the Mississippi River with chemicals in it and creating a dead zone. And we saw farm families that have been using chemicals getting cancer. And I think there's been a tendency for people to sort of say, well, that's unfortunate, but it's the cost of having a very strong economic engine in the Midwest, which is agriculture. And we've justified making farms much, much larger and making technology much more intensive because that was the only way to make a living. And the argument has been we have to go to scale, we have to create new efficiencies, we have to reduce our costs of production, and that's the only way we're going to crank out enough food to feed what's going to be 9 billion people on the planet soon. That's an argument you still hear today, but it was very strong 40, 50 years ago too. And the more I looked at the farm economy, which really, you know, I got some tips from some farmers I worked with and interviewed back in 1978-79, they just completely transformed my whole sense of the economy. But what really became clear was that farmers doubled their productivity in the last 50 years. They're, they're producing much more per farm and per acre than they could at, at the time. And yet they're earning less money. And trying to put some numbers to that has been my quest ever since 1974 or so. 
And the reality was that a lot of farmers ramped up production because they were told that prices would stay high and they were told that there would be markets forever. Those markets collapsed in about, collapsed in about two years. We were producing way too much grain. And farmers who had taken on debt thinking the prices would stay high now could not pay their debts back. And that became the farm credit crisis of the 1980s. The farmers I was working alongside in 1978-79 predicted a crisis. They were just saying they were seeing their neighbors taking on debt they couldn't possibly pay back. And it wasn't until about 85 that it became sort of nationally known to be the, what we call now call the farm credit crisis. Really, though, the data in the book shows that if you go back to 1973, the um, U.S. government, by asking farmers to grow more and asking them to expand, took advantage of a crisis to really ramp up the level of technology, ramp up the dependence that farmers had on taking on debt. At that point in 1973, you, you notice that farmers paying interest on loans, which is now also increasingly going to distant lenders who may not reinvest back in the community, would essentially take a system that used to funnel interest payments back to local banks and back to local individuals who loan money to the farmers, and now is going to distant banks, going to a metropolitan economy, going to a global metropolitan economy. And farmers have financed that by selling their products below the cost of production. And the crisis was exploited as a way to sort of get farmers on a treadmill that was more technologically intensive, highly more efficient and more productive, but also fundamentally not rewarding to the farm. And that meant not rewarding to the rural community. And of course, as the systems got bigger, small towns were less able to supply the spare parts or the mechanics or the equipment. So the whole structure of the economy was transformed from one that was pretty much self-generating and producing some, some wealth and some um, a cohesion as a community into one that was really dependent, highly dependent on external inputs, highly dependent on ex external credit, and um, not paying its own way anymore, but really financing someone else's expansion. It really seems like debt is such a big part of this picture. It really is. And, you know, as, as you look at the book, I'm tracking about $800 billion of payments that farmers have made on interest for farm debt. I also track a, a, another two or three trillion dollars of, of money that farmers have spent buying, again, seeds increasingly coming from outside instead of being grown within the community or by local seed growers. Um, the more dependent we get on fossil fuels and, and energy sources that come from outside, the more that leaks out of the economy. The more equipment is coming from outside or, you know, you have to spend half a million dollars to buy a, a combine or whatever. Um, the, those payments really do add up over time. And I, I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Tax policies that incentivize us to um, buy your neighbor's farm. <laughs> that, uh, that ends up taking um, wealth out of the community because it takes ownership out of the community. It, takes, it sets neighbors against each other. The, the, the most tangible sign of that right now is that in most communities I've studied, and I've worked in 144 regions around the country in 41 states, in most every region, if you own land, you're going to make more money renting it out to someone else to farm it than by farming it yourself. And so we now create a whole setting where land is valuable more because of the rent income you can get, not because of the wealth you can generate by growing food. And uh, that's, a, that's a real tragic place to be. That creates lots of inequalities right there because 
young folks who want to farm are often unable to buy land, at, especially if they're close to development zone in an urban area. Young people who may want to rent for a while or may even you know, trade for a share of their crops um, may have no way to really establish enough wealth to really buy that land. And so you, you get the winners who are renting out the land and you get other people who are trying their best to make payments or um, they're renting land and really don't have much chance of owning. Also, you know, I think other inequities come to play when it comes to, you know, discrimination in accessing credit for, for farmers of color, their ability to, you know, generate generational wealth um, in order to be able to buy land, to farm or to access credit. Those additional barriers come into play as well. That is really true. And I interviewed a lot of farmers in the South in 1986 about the way USDA local offices would shut them out and deny them credit, deny them even uh, the knowledge that there was an application form that they could fill out to apply for a loan. That, of course, went back to the, the Reconstruction era. It goes back to slavery. Uh, it obviously is related to how we stole land from tribes in the first place. So the, all those issues are uh, simmering beneath the surface of my book. Right, of course. I mean, you, you do point out that to, to understand that our food system is extractive from its inception, right, which is land theft, genocide, and slavery, that, that this violence set up the extractive model that you're describing, the stories that you tell in the book. And I think the other thing I would just point out, again, with the main justification for agriculture being that it's a terrific source of wealth, it turns out that white farmers and white farm communities themselves have been losing wealth farming. And if that's true for whites, it's even more true for everyone else who's had less um, ownership in the last several hundred years. So let's talk about that. You know, when it comes to, for example, commodity farmers, those farmers who are producing primarily commodity crops for export, one example that you give is with corn. Corn farmers spent more money on average raising their crops than selling them. You say that corn farmers have only made a profit in eight of the last 22 years and have averaged a loss of $524 per acre. Yes, it's really stunning. And there's now media reports that last year was one of the best years in farm history. But of course, what's responsible for that is mostly payments by the federal government because of the pandemic. Farmers, you know, I found are sort of uh, willing to take up those losses because they like living on farms. They like the independence of farming. They may have, be a third or fourth generation farmer and want to stay on that land at whatever cost they can. And more and more, the, the, the sort of vision has been, well, I hope that when I want to retire, I can sell this to housing development and I can make a lot of money and uh, you know, my kids won't have to worry about me. But it's not a vision for an agriculture that's going to generate itself. It's, a, it's really a vision of... Um, getting bought out by development. And, you know, some farms have become millionaires because their land is worth so much. But then that land is also taken out of production and it becomes strip malls and factories and um, housing. I want to talk about subsidies for a minute. You mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons it may seem as though farm country is doing better than it is, is because of the federal assistance in the form of agricultural subsidies that are received primarily by commodity farmers, 10 billion a year over the past three decades. So, you know, for some folks listening, it may seem counterintuitive to say, you know, like we need to 
we need to do more. <laughs> we need to do more to support agriculture. So what about these subsidies? I think you even say at one point in the book that the subsidies are, in fact, a mechanism of wealth extraction from rural communities. The subsidies essentially, from 1933 to 1973, the subsidies almost exactly replaced what farmers were paying in interest on loans. So you could imagine someone in a committee room in Washington, D.C. saying, we need to give the farmers as much subsidies as it'll take so they keep borrowing money. Because if they borrow money, then they can plant crops and they will buy inputs and they'll buy machinery. And that consensus lasted from 1933 to 1973, more or less. And then in 1973, again, during the energy crisis, that all went haywire. And it, it converted to a system where subsidies are really now compensating farmers for the fact that markets were fundamentally unfair. And so, um, you know, now the subsidies sort of have played the role of making sure that the game sort of keeps going. And, um, and, and since the game is extractive, then the subsidies play a very strong role in that. So, you know, I, I make the argument that federal money, public payments should really be an investment in an asset. They shouldn't be a cash flow. It's very, it's very precious money to have, and you should invest that in a way that sort of builds lasting capacity, builds lasting asset base. And instead, we've started thinking of subsidies as the income stream we need so that farmers won't complain too much. One thing I thought of a lot as I was reading your book is how the global economy has become sort of the air that we breathe. <laughs> it's sort of become our, our common sense that the farmer down the road from me sells their grain to China and, and the food that I buy um, and consume, I get from South America. Because this has become so normalized, and not just normalized, but I think promoted as, as progress, we don't tend to see this through the lens that you offer, which is wealth leaving our communities. Well, I hope that comes through in the book. You know, there, there's there's so many ironies right now where you have um, kids growing up on farms not knowing how to grow food. They only know how to grow commodities. And, uh, you know, you, you now have a lot of the people who are most interested in farming food for people are actually urban folks who grew up detached from the land or, or miss um, something that their grandparents had and want to find some connection like that. And, um we're all sort of having to learn, all of us, whether we're rural folks or urban folks, we're having to learn from scratch. How do, how do you grow vegetables? How do you grow and process food for your neighbors? And one of the um, problems of this global economy is that if you expect Chile to supply your grapes, and if you expect Paraguay to supply your artichokes, and if you expect Europe to supply your cheeses or what, what have you, then the skills of actually producing those foods and treating them in a healthy way and preparing that food often get lost too. And so we, we now have a, a sort of remarkable dumbing down of our population, partly because we're so interdependent globally. And this is in a country where we say we very proudly we feed the world and you know we're the we're the most productive agriculture on the planet, but somehow that doesn't connect with our daily lives where people really know how to handle food safely. We a lot of people don't know that you have to keep meats and vegetables separate to keep from cross contamination or, or getting salmonella on the vegetables. I was lucky in my generation because I had a mother who t taught me skills that she learned from her grandmother and her, and her mother and. Uh, those are pretty naturally and organically passed on through my family. And a lot of kids didn't, didn't have that experience. 
when we talk about U.S. agriculture feeding the world, uh, to me, it, it sort of brings up the question of whether or not that's true, <laughs> right, is one thing, but also who feeds us is, is sort of another question, right? Because as you point out, 40 million people in the U.S. are food insecure. That's one in eight Americans who are not sure where their, their next meal may be coming from. So commodities are being exported, um, you know, food is being imported, um, but a lot of people are hungry. You know, we sort of now have a very effective food relief system right now, which I think has gotten much stronger during the pandemic. And one thing that I, I'm very happy about with the pandemic is that a, a lot of the uh, funders and people who've been donating food to food banks stopped asking the question about whether someone was lazy or not and said they need food let's get it to them and they raised or increased their donations and food banks had a incredibly stressful year trying to get healthy foods to more people and a lot of them were able to to buy more food from farms near them to give to low-income people who are, who are needing the food so that you know there's some real progress even in a pandemic year out of that but you know, I, as we're talking, I was thinking back on a study I did in, in Indiana in 2012, and I don't think there's a state in the country that I've worked in that's more proud of the fact that we feed the world. And, you know, they're, they're exporting processed foods and raw commodities, you know, in massive quantities. And there's a real mentality that, you know, Indiana farmers feed the world. And, and yet the five years before I did my study of the Indiana food system, the number of farmers markets doubled from 50 to about 106 in five years because rural folks in Indiana said, we have no place to get fresh vegetables. We have nobody growing fresh vegetables. And it was really amazing to kind of watch the awareness come through to people who were being their chest about feeding the world and then say, but we need better places to shop and we need more farmers raising food for us. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, that raises the question of how do we keep wealth locally? How do we relocalize food systems? And, and also, how do we keep this from warping into an isolationist or even xenophobic kind of rhetoric, right? Because the issue is less about closing our, ourselves, our regions off to the rest of the world or to the outside world, and really more about corporate control and, and who controls the, the system. I want to be very clear, and I, I think you've made a really good point that I'm not believing we should build walls around rural communities, and I don't think we should build a wall around the United States and, and try to cut off international exchange. There's a, a lot we have to learn from abroad and a lot of reason to be collaborating. But I think the, there are two tests that I would put forward. One is, um, are you growing food for yourselves and then exporting the surplus? Or are you exporting the surplus to the point that you, can't, you don't know how to grow food for yourself? And that's one test of a, of a community food web. And I think the um, other thing I would say is that when you have a, a web that's working well, and when you have, you know, I'm a farmer and I sell to a miller that I know who mills that into flour uh, for households to use and for a baker to use, and the baker's making bread. When you have people trading with each other around life's essentials, like meat and like milk and vegetables and grains and what have you, if people are making a good livelihood trading with each other, they're building a stronger fabric of life, stronger community, and they're building stronger economic multipliers as well. And that means when a dollar comes into the community, it will stay longer and it will do more work and it will cycle between several hands before it goes somewhere else. 
One of the reasons I focused on the extractive economy is that we don't talk about it in this country, but it's probably the main obstacle to communities solving their own problems because they're locked into a system that supports metropolitan economies globally more than it supports rural communities or inner city urban communities. And um, we're sort of locked into these structures and we, we don't talk about how they're taking wealth from us. And so it's very hard to recognize it, step back and do something else. Do you think that's changing at all in terms of the political will to get at some of these root causes? Well, I, I certainly feel hopeful. There have been a remarkable millions of people standing up and, and just, you know, voting and getting involved. You know, the events around George Floyd's murder here in Minneapolis a year ago um, have caused a lot of people to stand up and, and demand equity and demand justice. And that's a part of the process as well. Uh, it's really highlighted some of the needs that, are, you know, the neighborhood I used to live in where George was killed, you know, some of the needs that that neighborhood has that were really being routinely ignored by policymakers in Minneapolis for decades. So I feel like we're on the cusp of some very exciting activity and a whole generation of young people learning how to farm, learning how to cook better, learning how to put up food, um, learning some survival skills that uh, is really quite inspiring to see. But um, also we're wrestling with a pandemic, we're wrestling with economic structures that are extractive, we're wrestling with a political system that's not really been that good at responding to what people's real needs are. And so we have um, quite a bit of work cut out for us. But I feel like right now, a lot of people are standing up in ways I have not seen in my lifetime. This is bringing up for me this question that you raise, which is, what is the purpose of a food system? You might even say, what is the purpose of our economy? You know, I think sometimes we find ourselves speaking at cross purposes, you know, proposing different kinds of solutions when we haven't even agreed on this fundamental question, right? Or we assume that the goal of food systems is obvious, oh, to grow food and feed people. But in fact, we have to be very clear, is the purpose of the food system to reward shareholders with profits to be extractive? Or is the purpose, as you propose, health, wealth, connection, and capacity? You know, I, I, even, even among the community food movement, I think there's a tendency to sort of say, oh, there's a model farm, or, you know, there's a model restaurant or a model business. And we celebrate individual successes, and we, you know, we need more of them. I'm not against them. But we, we often act as if that's kind of enough. If we, you know, we can point to someone who's uh, found a good business in spite of all this stuff. But I think it's really very crucial to step back and ask the fundamental question, you know, what is a food system supposed to accomplish? And, um, you know, the four that you mentioned are certainly been my mantra since about 2004, that basically we need to build health. And that's pretty obvious to most people that our food system should be helping us be healthier. <laughs> Ironically, um, you know, we now spend, I think it's about $327 billion a year on the medical costs of diabetes, just one food-related condition alone. And that amounts to almost 90% of what farmers earn selling all of the commodities in a year they sell. We find the food system is building wealth for some at the expense of others. It's particularly building wealth for metropolitan economies globally and not for people in the communities where farming is practiced and not certainly not in communities of color or marginalized communities. It's really, you know, it's building inequity instead of community wealth. The other thing I talk about is the need to connect. Um, 
our cultural practices are so embedded in food. Uh, you know, my ancestors celebrated certain foods because they were easy to grow in the climate where they were. They thrived in the soil we had. They were something that people could count on being available, fairly low cost for everybody. You know, food is very so essential to how we build culture, whether it's wild rice or native cultures here in Minnesota. We really need to connect culturally around food in a very visceral and very long-term way. And um, on, instead of that, we have a food system that basically keeps us in different poles and keeps us sort of celebrating individual success and separates us from the land and separates us from uh, the ability to have the time to really celebrate who we are, where we came from, and, and what traditions we have. But the final thing I'd just say is that, you know, it's a matter of building capacity. And we sort of have this strange time where we feed the world, but we don't know how to cook for ourselves. And we don't have pots and pans in our kitchen. And so we've, we have a system that is not building health. It's not building wealth. It's not building connection between people. And it's not building our capacity to have the skills to really regenerate our own food system. So it's failing on all the four major purposes that I would identify a food system needs to have you know, that's the complexity of the moment we're in and why I think keeping our eyes on that prize and saying, this is what we're trying to build. We're trying to build a culture of collaboration that really is wrapped up around food. If we build that successfully, it will last over generations. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you listen.